cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. I am Alan Watts, and this is Cutting the Matrix on the 28th of January 2009. Newcomers can look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, and on the website you'll find lots of previous talks I've given, which you can listen to at your leisure. And I try to patch in a lot of history that's omitted from mainstream books. I even tell you of the societies that ensure that happens, since they're in control of pretty well all of mainstream media. And it certainly is better to understand the big picture, uh, however horrific it might be. And it truly does freak a lot of people out when they understand how overwhelming it seems that this big monster system is. But it's been the goal for a long time. And when you start to understand that, the panic should subside to an extent when you realize that you're living through a script, a script that involves every population on the planet. Every nation on the planet is guided through into, like a business plan, we're guided into a new world order that to some at the bottom who help champion it, like the Greenies, think it's going to be a wonderful utopia. But those with eyes to see at what's happening around them today with the total information network society, cameras everywhere and so on, it's going to be more of an Orwellian system, at least in this phase, as the present generation's live and then die off. They work in centuries. They plan centuries ahead. And they literally bring on wars. They have factions on all sides to guide the wars to their proper conclusions and really to affect the changes in society that war brings. They get both sides bring off the same new path, whereas before there would be at loggerheads. Also look into Alan Sentinel.eu for transcripts, which you can download the transcripts of these talks, and you can print them up. They're written in the various languages of Europe. I don't ask for money from the shows that I go on, and I'm asked on an awful lot of shows, and I don't accept them all. Depends what their format is. But uh, I depend upon the listener to help support me and buy what I have for sale on my website at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. That keeps me going, and believe you me, there's no big income comes in here. If I wanted it to be so, I would bring on lots of advertisers, and I'd bring on subscriptions and so on. And that's what all the other ones do to survive. The ads you hear on this show help to go and pay for the program that helps the staff go, helps their paychecks, helps them buy the equipment and maintain the equipment, which is not cheap these days. And that's where the advertising money goes it's from the ads that you hear on the show. So if you want to support me and get the information that I'm given out to you, you know where to, where to get it or how to do it. Just go to the cuttingthematrix.com website and you'll find out how to do it there. You can also donate as well. And so much for my shameless self-promotion. I won't overdo it. It's a pity I have to do it at all, but that's what happens in the society where everything supposedly is for free. I've been going on about 
how societies, mainly one big society that has circles specializing in different areas of economics and all that comes from economics, including societies, industry, material wealth of the world and so on, how they came into being. And that was part, supposedly, of their agenda, starting with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which really was a continuation of a society that was already on the go in Britain. And I'd like to go into how they've affected the world today, especially some of the things that are still happening today, and how they set up the conflicts for future wars back after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. I've gone over quite a few topics in the last few weeks to do with how systems are set up, how the culture is set up in different countries, and how commerce dominated the culture in America, and how it was manipulated to do so by people like Bernays and others who came on the scene, uh, people who were supposedly outstanding at their time, and certainly were, because he started at the age of 24, helping at the League of Nations set up uh, different organizations of propaganda that be eventually called public relations. It sounds better than straight propaganda. It's still propaganda nonetheless. And he was a past master, well-trained in the techniques from previous centuries. But all of these people, when you put them together and you find the links between them, all goes back to this group in London, England, that was setting up a world stage, a world society. They had world citizenship ideals, and they mentioned them frequently right down through the ages, and they still do today. In fact, Mr. Rockefeller gives out the World Citizenship Awards. They use round-table societies to debate problems that they come out of the big meetings, the world meetings of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR, and the roundtables hammer out ways to implement those policies into society through, again, persuasion, propaganda, schools, every means at their disposal. And they are so well-funded by the big institutions, the big foundations, which were set up by the banking fraternities that work in league with this group, called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR. The foundations supposedly, according to Quigley, were first set up uh, when the inheritance taxes came in and death duties taxes and so on came in and the big families found ways around them. So they set up the foundations which became the nucleus of keeping the aristocracy going, a parallel government that ran alongside democracy that was unimpeded by public debate or argument and they could get their agendas done without any hassle, make make the mandate and carry it forward and get it done. Very, very simple. But they also had categorized the world because they'd used previous members before them that their studies that they'd done on the populations of the world, they were into eugenics. We must never forget this. Uh, they were using the foundations of Darwinism to explain their theory of the world 
and to explain the different temperaments in different cultures and society, they were the ones who categorized the Arab populations in amongst what they called the Mediterranean group. They didn't like the Mediterranean group too much. And you find that in H.G. Wells, another member, uh, he wrote about it, he categorized them in the outline of history, his own books, the different cultures and subcultures. He wasn't too fond of them. And this particular group were the ones who set up the League of Nations, they set up the Treaty of Versailles, they ran the Treaty of Versailles, they ran the negotiations, they've always drafted up the policies for Britain and the United States together, and through their contact, I mean contact in the U.S. at that time, they ran President Wilson through Mandel House, Colonel Mandel House. And it was, it was the United States who supplied the money and the financing to set up the League of Nations, which turned into the United Nations. Well, what's that got to do with today? Uh, uh, very few people, hopefully, might ask. Very few. Because history is very important, and all the problems we have today were foreseen by them 100 years ago because they set up the future. And they did big plans for the Middle East, very big plans. They withdrew so many troops from the front lines in Europe in World War I and suddenly brought them over to Palestine and Egypt because they planned to bring another group in that would use, they would use basically as something that would, that would keep the Arab world on its tiptoes for the next hundred years. And that was the state of Israel. Professor Carl Quigley, who was the historian for this group, talks about it in page 171, actually before that as well. And it categorized the, the personality types of the Arabs. They lumped everybody in together. Now remember, their whole idea was first to get the English-speaking countries together as a whole, a block, as a nucleus for a world federation, and that included the United States of America. The next part was to get a united Europe through war, through conflict, and then peace resolution. They would get, hopefully, if they, their, their um, long-aspired dream of a united Europe but they also had plans for uniting Africa. That's still going underway today. Uh, as a uni unify, they try and unify Arab, uh, Africa into one country. Remember what Karl Marx said. That first you must have wars of national liberation. I mean, when you think you're free, then you must have centralized government. That's a key to a centralization of government. The same thing happened in the U.S. with the Civil War. It's about centralization of government. So much so that Karl Marx telegraphed Lincoln and that's on display in the records, and said he'd done the greatest thing by centralizing government. They also wanted to get a federated Arab League as well together, and all these different leagues would eventually be absorbed into one world governmental system, and that's always been their goals and aspirations. It still is. But remember, <laughs> they've always been behind the wars, to get the wars going, the conflict must be begin. And tonight, uh, on my website, I'll put up a link to a YouTube video on Brzezinski. It's a hard one to say, Brzezinski, Brzezinski. And this man, like most of these members of the trilateral group, which is one 
CFR and the CFR he belongs to. You'll see him uh, 30 years ago uh, helping to stir up the jihad with the very people they're bombing today. And you'll even hear him saying, hear of all people saying, that God would be with them, God would be on their side. If people don't realize the CIA set up what's now called Al-Qaeda, which really was just a code name for all different factions to come into and communicate through basically a radio system. And they used them, and they, used, they even gave them special writings on their holy book, the Quran, to show them why they should be in a holy war. They dreamed up into a holy war. And right through the whole war that they had with Afghanistan and the Soviet Union and so on, uh, the U.S. and Britain were pushing the Arabs to form into these warrior groups. And supposedly, this is the outcome of them today, where we have one of them gone rogue, supposedly. And that's why we're all, we all must start wearing chains of surveillance, supposedly, to keep us all safe. So you'll, you'll hear Brzezinski give the speech himself to the young men that he wanted to go off and fight. He also, also put a link up to Mr. Rockefeller, who never retires. It's incredible. He's all over the globe with details. And you, you'll see him going, going to and talking to the, the, the Council of Foreign Relations and other institutions, which they, they own. They all own. They own all of the, the groups that are amalgamating the Americas. He funds every single group, and that's, that's on this video as well. So you can you can watch that. It's astonishing. But it all falls exactly in line with Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, and the other one, The Anglo-American Establishment. It's following it to the letter. And a federated Latin America joins with a federated North America, a member of Federation of the Americas. Then we are to join with the Federation of Europe. And then well, that will also eventually bring in more and more countries until you're left really with the Far East, and that's already been done because the other branch that was set up 70-odd years ago was the Institute for Pacific, Pacific Relations, the IPR, which was the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a front group for that very purpose. And pretty well all the prime ministers Australia's had for the last 20, 25, 30 years has been a member of this, working towards this goal of unification. From the Anglo-American establishment, this is relevant for today. And we've all heard about what's happening in Gaza. There's no great outcry from the media. They tell us all about it. Well, they don't tell us all about it. They tell us what we're supposed to know. Like, isn't this awful? As people who are really in a cage are being slaughtered from the air by an advanced military air force. Why is it all happening? And why is it all being allowed to happen? <clears throat> the last thing people think of is a mandate set up a long, long time ago. And who set it up? Here's an article just before I talk about, give it from the Anglo-American establishment. And it's from the Irish Times newspaper. 
that they're using phosphorus clouds. This is a form of weaponry. Phosphorus burns right through you. You have to go into, into darkened surgery rooms to see all the bits of phosphorus that are glowing in the bodies of the people. And it says here, we are guinea pigs to the Americans and Israelis, says Dr. Abu Shaban. The Americans give the Israelis new weapons. And it's true that the U.S. has given them the weapons. The world knows this. And they try them out on us. This is, this is from Dr. Sobi Shaikh, who's a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, who is there at the moment, telling about the advanced weaponry that the microchips are using. They're now in the bodies of the people. Now read this when I get back from this break. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, going into the past to understand the present. And only by understanding the past does the present make any sense at all. Uh, I'm discussing at the moment what's what's happening there in the Gaza Strip. And I'm reading from an article from the Irish Times, where all kinds of high-tech weaponry, new types are being used on people there who are, who are technically in a cage and being bombed. And it says here, and this is from Dr. Sobi Shaikh, member of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. They're definitely testing weapons on us, it says. The amount of damage done by these weapons is not commensurate with, to the wounds. We found computer chips, magnetic pieces, and transistors in wounds. Sometimes there are only minute pinpoint punctures to the abdomen and chest, but you can see huge damage to internal organs. One patient had his liver burn black as if it had been grilled. We think there must be something embedded in the human body that is releasing poison and killing. And it also has quite the articles on the effects of the phosphorus as well, as people are getting carried off still alive and their bodies are burning from within. Incredible. And the world just goes back and says, tisk tisk isn't that awful. And we wonder why that is. Why is it the United Nations can come into every other country, supposedly? Look what happened in Bosnia. They've been all over the globe. But you must understand, first of all, when you really understand the politics and geopolitics of every area they go into, there's always resources that they're after. Because their UN is a front, another front of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And it was from its beginning since they founded it. And the Rockefeller Foundation, that was part, and still is, the main part really in the U.S. of the CFR, put the money up for it and gave them the land for the United Nations. It's geopolitical and financial economics. Going back to the setting up of modern-day Israel, and I've talked about Sir Ronald Storrs before, and others who, are, who belong to the Milner Group of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and Balfour and others who drew up the Balfour Declaration that had contained in it a home for Jews put in there that Britain was all for it supposedly from the governmental side of view now they ran the government at that time too completely and quickly in his own books makes no bones about that and remember he was a historian with their records 
with a separate history that fills in all the blank spots. Not the stuff you get at school. The stuff you get at school even tells you uh, are, are published and written by the members of this group, so that's how you get this different history for school books. It's astonishing. On the Anglo-American establishment, says that the attitude of the Milner group towards the Arabs and Jews can be seen from some quotations from members of the group. At the peace conference of 1919, which, remember, they set up themselves, discussing the relative merits of the Jews and Arabs, one of their members, Smuts, who was sent there, said, they haven't the Arabs' attractive manners, they do not warm the heart by graceful subjection, they make demands, they are bitter, recalcitrant little people, and like the bores, impatient of leadership, and ruinously quarrelsome amongst themselves. They see God in the shape of an oriental potentate. A few years later, John Dove, in a letter to Brand, another member of the group, asked him, see that spies all over the place, seeing them the lay of the land, asked himself why there was so much pro-Arab feeling amongst the British, especially the public school caste. And the public school caste actually is private in Britain. It's misleading there. They call it public schools. It's private and attributed it to the Arabs' good manners, derived from the desert life, their love for sport, especially riding and shooting, both close to the heart of the, the public, which is private schoolboy. A little later, in another letter also written from Palestine, Dove declared that the whole Arab world should be in one state, a federation of Arab states, that was her goal. And it must have Syria and Palestine for its front door, not be like South Africa, with Delagoa Bay in other hands. The Arab world, he explained, needs this Western door because we are trying to Westernize the Arabs and without it they would be driven to the East and to India, which they hate. And he concluded, if the Arab belongs to the Mediterranean, as T.E. Lawrence insists, because it categorized all the peoples, including the Irish, we should do nothing to stop him getting back to it. By our own nostrum, for the ills of mankind everywhere is Western civilization, and if it is a sound one, what would be the good of forcing a people who want direct contact with us to slink in and out of their country by a back door, which, like the Persian Gulf, opens only on the east? And by the way, that's why Britain pulled all those men from World War I of the trenches into this area. It was to set up another group in those areas to initially cause conflict, but it would be an outpost for up to 100 years. Because, it, because most of those Jews were European Jews. So it bring a European culture into the Arab countries as an outpost. And that's what, what Storrs referred to when he said, we have set up a modern Ulster in the Middle East. That's what the, the British government did. They set up an Ulster, a little, a little Britain in Ireland that would be a thorn in the side of Ireland throughout the present times. This is a technique we're talking about here. And here they are using the same thing in the Middle East. And then it goes on to say, gives a speech that Mr. Milner himself, Lord Milner, gave in 1923 in the House of Lords, 27th of June. When he talks about this and the whole outline for the Zionist colony, I'll be back with more to read this after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Alan Watt were cutting through the matrix, putting the past and present together because you have to understand why policies are made. It gives you the picture as to why terrible things can happen for up to 100 years sometimes because the policy will not change. And the policies were made by a very powerful group that still runs the world today. In fact, they're setting up the last phases of unification for the Americas. And then the amalgamation, which has been mentioned by the Prime Minister of Canada, as planned 100-odd years ago by the Milner and Royal Group and the Royal Institute for International Affairs to merge with Europe once that's all done. And they never changed their plans. They never changed their plans. This is astonishing. So here's what Lord Milner says in 1922. Actually, it was 1923 he made this speech. And he talks about the Balfour Declaration and the White Paper of 1922, CMD 1700. He asked, he added, I'm not speaking of the policy which is advocated by the extreme Zionists, which is a totally different thing. I believe we have only to go on steadily with the policy of the Balfour Declaration as we have ourselves interpreted it in order to see great material progress in Palestine. Now, they drafted the thing up in the first place. And a gradual subsistence of the present Arab agitation. He says, so here they, he's saying they're going, to, they're going to have material progress in Palestine if they bring the Zionists in because of their wealth. But he also acknowledges the fact there was agitation, and that's what happens when people have been brought in to your land and they're taken over. He says, of the force of which it would be foolish to deny, but which I believe to be largely due to artificial stimulus and to a very great extent to be excited from without. They always, they always blame outsiders coming in to help. That's what we have today. Insurgents, you see, they call them. They use that same term in Vietnam. Insurgents, find them. Uh, you know, you, you, it's astonishing. These same guys in the 1800s were agitating for revolution across the planet. They trained the young leagues, the young Turks, the young Italians, and all the rest of it for rebellion from within to overthrow their existing governments so they could bring in this beautiful new world order then. One of, one of their guys, a young Turk, that's what they call them, the young Turks, was a guy who started World War I by killing the Archduke Ferdinand, blowing him up. So here they are, creating this new thorn, a new ulster that we set up in the Middle East, amongst another people. And this is the man who was behind a lot of it, saying what he, he thought about it, at least publicly, was allowed to publicly say. He said, the symptoms of any real and general dissatisfaction amongst the mass of the Arab population with the conditions under which they live, I think, it would be very difficult to discover. There's plenty of room in that country for considerable immigrant population without injuring in any way the resident Arab population, and indeed, in many ways, it would tend to their extreme benefit. There are about 700,000 people in Palestine, and there's room for several millions. I am and always have been a strong supporter of the pro-Arab policy, which was first advocated in this country in the course of the war. Of course he was, because his group put that out too. They all run all sides. I believe in the independence of the Arab countries, which they owe to us, because, after all, Britain had supposedly wiped out their, their masters 
they were the Turks that had run it, the Ottoman Empire had run those countries for a long, long time, and which they can only maintain with our help. I look forward to an Arab federation. You see, they wanted federated peoples across the planet to bring into this world society, the planned society. I'm convinced the Arab will make a great mistake in claiming Palestine as a part of the Arab Federation in the same sense as other countries of the Near East, which are mainly inhabited by Arabs. So Arab was to be, Palestine was to be given a special place in all of this, a special place, but not to be allowed to really to have too much power. So he calls it a mistake if they go after more power. In page 173, they put pressure on the government of Britain to alter certain things in their favor for this federation. This is what it says here. As may be expected, in view of the position of Reginald Copeland on the Peel Commission, the report of that commission met with a most enthusiastic reception from the Milner Group, the guy who just gave that speech. This report was a scholarly study of conditions in Palestine of a type usually found in any document with which the Milner Group had direct contact. For the first time in any government document, the aspiration of Jews and Arabs in Palestine were declared to be irreconcilable. They could not get on together, an existing mandate unworkable. Accordingly, the report recommended the partition of Palestine into a Jewish state, an Arab state, and a neutral enclave containing the, the holy places. See, that's how it's still set up today. The suggestion was accepted by the British government in a white paper, CMD 5513, issued through Ormsby Gore, another member. They're all members of this organization. He also defended it before the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations. In the House of Lords, it was defended by Lord Lugard, but recently retired as the British member of Permanent Mandates Commission, that Permanent Mandates Commissions. As I'm saying, they, they create a mandate and they'll, they'll carry it for a hundred years if need be or more. In the House of Commons, the, nation, the, the motion to approve the government's policy as outlined in the White Paper 5513 was introduced by Ormsby Gore. The first speech in support of the motion, which was passed without a division, was from Leopold Amory, another member of the group. At one point afterwards, he said in 1923, this Amory's speech in support of this motion is interesting because in 23, Amory said, however much we may regret it, we have lost the situation in Palestine as we lost it in Ireland through a lack of wholehearted faith in ourselves and through the constitutional inability of the individual Britain and indeed of the whole country not to see the other fellow's point of view and to be influenced by it even to the detriment of any consistent policy. You understand the British people were not for this happening. It didn't make any sense to them to allow another people to come in and push off the, the people who were already there. He thought that was unreasonable. They wouldn't accept this new mandate. Also at that time, you had open warfare in some of the cities like London going on between the Zionist factions and, and the Orthodox Jews. The Zionist factions were really a, a branch, a, a revolutionary branch set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, as they set up so many other ones across the world, to be used for a particular purpose, which of course they profit by as well. 
you find one of their main members of the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, one of the founding members with him, in fact, the man who took over Cecil Rhodes' policy for the Rhodes Trust, was Lord Rothschild himself, who'd also been funding an immigration policy into Palestine from the 1800s. And they couldn't get enough of them, and most of them at that time came from Russia. So Amos said in 1923, however, we may, we may regret it, we have lost the situation in Palestine. As we lost it in Ireland, and so on, and so on, and so on. In other words, they, they just didn't know that, that the Zionist faction would simply take over and run off with it. Of course they knew that, because that was the plan all along. That was the plan all along. They deceived the Arabs. It was quite open about it, and other documentation. And <clears throat> the plan was put up an Ulster, an Ulster in the Middle East, and that's what we're going through today. We're suffering because of the policies of that period. It's astonishing, as I say, and, and if you look at those links, I'll put up at the end of the show tonight, it's astonishing. And Quigley even said it in his book, that a small group of people could have such incredible power and literally run nations and all the institutions within those nations including all the politics and all the factions including all of the media including all of academia and right down to the school books that you'd read and what would be in them written by their own members with all of their histories and so on it's scary because they still do it today and it's all about world federation at all costs, all and any cost. doesn't matter. On one of the links I'm putting up tonight, too, you'll hear Mr. Rockefeller thanking the media for keeping quiet about the Council on Foreign Relations' roles and constructing up this big, brand-new, brave new world and not publishing what happened within the meetings because they're all members of the, of the society that's why they don't publish it but he thanks them openly in fact he says they could not have gotten away with what they were doing without their compliance that's how we're truly run we're really run like powerful powerful institutions which comprise the biggest banking families on the planet who fund the foundations that funds all of the hundreds and thousands of non-governmental organizations, that gives out grants to every university across the planet, along with, of course, suggestions of what to teach, what not to teach, what to say, what not to say. And we grew up in this world reading their media, kept in utter confusion, watching horror along with trivia, all combined together in a surrealistic circus as we're mind-bombed into stupidity. And out of that stupidity, we're all fighting each other. And yet the evidence is all there. Using all of the sciences at their command, and especially the art of psychological warfare on the public, mind control, basic mind control, is not difficult whatsoever. It's not difficult when you control all of the media. It's not 
difficult when the sciences that can create whole cultures have been used for over a hundred years at least and gave us the culture. These are the same boys that wanted for a period the consumer society because from the consumer society you can tax them massive taxation and they take the taxation back and fund scientific organizations along certain paths. They tell them what they want. Science, like everything else, like society itself, could go off in hundreds and hundreds of directions, but they don't. Why do you think, from the Roaring Twenties up until 1960, the mandate was to get something to do with contraception? Because they didn't have it in the Roaring Twenties when they were pushing the drugs on the public, that prohibition which made booze cans sexy, and they brought in the miniskirt and the music. The fallout was incredible, apart from the diseases that broke out, they didn't have the antibiotics either. They didn't have the facilities to take care of all the abortions, the side effects of having fun. They didn't have enough orphanages to take in the unwanted children that came out of it as well. So they went to the drawing board and they were funded. All these scientists were funded. And that's all they worked on for years and years was contraception, like the pill. And lo and behold, penicillin broke out not long before that. So for the first time, they could treat some of the venereal diseases. The same foundations then funded front groups, front groups as always, to protest and demand abortion rights. Incredibly well-funded. Governments chipped in as well. Because when you go into grant-taking from government, you'll find out that you will get a grant if you're pushing for radical change. And I clued into that in Canada when I was asked to sing at a place, and they asked me if we'd sing anything more radical. I asked them why. This is because that's where they, why they get their funding from the government for radical change. And I met a whole bunch of people that were no doubt far-left communists. In fact, one of them came over from the Moscow University to teach the next part of the strategy of networking all of the left-wing groups together. And he thought I was one of them since I was, in, I was there after, with all the artists after a show. And I, 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 he was from England. And this is during the Cold War. I says, you're living in California, but you're going across the planet and you're taught in the Moscow University as to how it caused further radical change within America. And he said, yeah. I says, well, don't never stop you at borders. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, like, didn't I know? Wasn't I in on the know? And I wasn't. Then he realized there was another party working all sides. Of course, he didn't get stopped anywhere. It was the same with Peter Wright, who worked for MI5 and MI6, who wrote Spycatcher. He goes through the whole process of the main spies in England who all came from the aristocratic families. And they had one thing in common, the ones who were from Britain, who worked for the Soviets. They'd all been boarded as students at university by the Rothschild family. And he put in his book the fact that even though Rothschild was the main suspect, 
the end of it all, they made that same Victor Rothschild head of all the security agencies in Britain, even though he was the main suspect. He's trying to tell you that there was another level running both communism and what we thought of as capitalist system. Rothschild's job was to make sure, and the spies' jobs was to make sure, that the guys at the top ensured there were no accidents down below. Everyone down below, right down to the, to the soldiers and those who commanded the weapons systems, had to think it was real. The whole populations had to think it was real. That was the purpose of it, to terrify us into, my God, we need a global system, a global government, we can't go on like this. And every time that Peter Wright and others were tipping off the head of their, their organization, someone tipped them off, these spies off, and they got out of the country. Now, the only ones above their boss was the royal family who got in a black box every, every day the latest recommendations of the plans of who they were going to pick up as agents, etc. They even grilled the heads, the subsequent heads of MI5 and MI6 to see if they'd lead to doubts. See, the aristocracy, this big organization with its front groups, ran both sides of everything. I'll be back with more after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, covering a bit of ground tonight as you bring the past closer to the present to realize what's happening today was planned an awful long time ago, and things that make no sense to people today don't alter their course. It continues, horror continues, because there's a mandate on the go, and it's part of geopolitics. Geopolitics is an old, old game played by Britain and establishment. That's why Bonaparte called them perfidious Britain, or perfidious England, because they kept making alliances and pitting one side of the alliance against another side of an alliance and having them go to war with each other to weaken the powerful through war. They've used this done through history. That's part of the policy standard technique and policy. It's still in work today. As I say, the United Nations will not go into certain countries because the United Nations was set up and run and goes on the mandate and goes by the principles of the Royal Institute for International Affairs comes from foreign relations and take your pick of what name you want to give the same group because Quigley tells you in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment that they are the same group. They have branches in every country across the planet. They also run the round table societies. They're hard at work for global citizenship. Now remember too, what is citizenship? It means you're born with a pre-existing duty to a system. You should remember that at all times. How can you be free if you're born into a system with pre-existing duties? Think about it. And the world they want to bring in is a world of servitude to the world state. And now the economic powers, once again, because it's the same combination of the big bankers, 
are bringing us into a stage of helplessness where we'll ask them for help and they will provide it with a brand new system, a new way of living because the time for consumerism is over. We don't, they don't need our massive taxes anymore that they took from us to pay for their war machinery and all the logistical supplies, etc. It goes with it. In a world order, it's different. And you'll eventually serve the world system. Remember, one of their members, Charles Galton Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years, that's quite the boast too. Think of it, the next million years. He's talking about how the elite will run it. And putting himself in that category, of course, he said there has always existed a system of slavery. And we are simply creating a more perfected system of slavery. A system in which the public don't realize that they are, in fact, slaves. How would that happen? Well, it is happening. People, if they're given enough little toys to play with, enough education, not education, but entertainment, circuses, bread and circuses, and games to play, and have the little routines which are worked out and studied perfectly. There's so many studies in universities about the routines of people as they go through the Internet and scour the groups and subgroups and all the rest of it. Even if a project to see how all the friends that you talk to on your cell phone, what you all have in common that makes you actually connect to each other. We're all studied like rats. But most folk will go into loving their slavery as long as they can keep their subgroups and a few little toys to play with. And it'll be presented to them as the only way out of the mess we're in. From Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.